0: All right. Good morning. How we doing? A little chilly? Happy Sunday? Pirates won again yesterday? Big fans? Are we bought in yet? Are we in? Great, great. Great. Everyone's like, no, I'm too hurt. You're only 28, Ben. You don't remember the last 30 years. Oh, no. I'm so glad to be here. Um, thanks Thanks for worshiping with us this morning. My name is Ben France. I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here. Man, I'm excited about what God's Word has for us Uh, this morning. uh, Earlier this this week, I went on vacation this week. Thank you. I missed you last week. My family and I went down south for a few days and uh, spent some time with some old family friends and ate a lot of delicious food that put me 10 pounds further out than where I want to be. And it was worth it. But all that to say, um, the week before that, I uh, got a text message from a couple of buddies. Uh, He was in student ministries for a number of years and... um, God really blessed me in those years to have a team uh, of student guys around me that are just, I mean, they're incredible. They're they're all lead guys, lead student guys, some church all over the U.S. at this point. But um, it's coming around the time where two of my buddies, my my best friend Noah, my other, I'll call my best friend. hes not. There's a wild card in every friend group. Brandon is our wild card. Brandon Noah texts me and say, hey, we got camps coming up. Ben, um, we have some creative stuff that, that we're kicking around. We'd love if you would just hop on a call with us and just brainstorm for a while. For, just for old time's sake, I said, great, I'm all about it. So we hopped on a call. Josh was there with us because I wanted to see, uh, him to, to pick up on some cool stuff as he leads uh, movement youth that we're really, really excited about launching uh, here in the coming months. Amen for that. Um so we're kicking around these ideas, we're talking through uh, camp themes and how we should brand it and all, you know, just the wild, absurd, I was like, well, what if you uh, built like a giant, like wall-sized, light, bright board and it was, like, this, whole, this whole thing, but kind of we landed on a couple of things. Um, we landed on the fact that both of them, all like the branding of their camp wanted to be like space-themed, which I think is really cool. So with the brain that I have over the next the last week, I had to just learn a bunch of stuff about space. Um, it, it, I don't know why, I just, it, was, it was in my head, I have to. And I came across something really, really cool. Uh, it's this thing, it's called a gamma ray burst. Has anyone ever heard of a gamma ray burst? Any scientists? Okay, we got Kevin, got Emily, a few of them. So if what I say is wildly incorrect, you can tell me afterwards. just don't do it while I'm here. Just let me get through it. So. A gamma ray burst is essentially this. It is an immense burst of light that explodes when a black hole is forming. Well, Ben, how does a black hole form? I don't know. If I knew, I probably wouldn't be here, and I'd probably be making a lot of money. But it shines. So, so it's these, these bursts of gamma ray light, whatever that means. But here's what's cool about it. It shines hundreds of times brighter than a supernova. Uh, do you know how much light a supernova gives off? A lot. Uh, More than 10 billion suns. 10 billion. And a gamma ray burst gives off hundreds. How much is hundreds? I don't know, hundreds. Somewhere between one and nine. Hundreds of times brighter than that. This is a real number from NASA's website. It gives off uh, a million trillion times more light than the sun. I would have a picture of it for you, um, but that's not possible because it's a billion trillion times more brighter than the sun, whatever that means. It gives off more energy in a few seconds than the sun will give off in 10 billion years. And if none of that stuff's clicking with you, um, gamma ray energy is what Marvel Comics said made the Hulk. Super powerful, big time stuff. So as powerful as a gamma ray burst is, here we, here we go. This is called the Jesus juke. This is the part where I take something that's not spiritual and make it spiritual. You tracking with me? There's one thing that that amount of power can't do. This is what's been kicking around in my brain. It can't change your eternity. It can't. It could send you there. It's a lot of energy. But it can't affect where you go afterwards. It can't, your, it can't change your eternity. As a matter of fact, uh, there's only one person. His name is Jesus Christ. And it's his word, the power through the Holy Spirit, as we see in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that can change that. That's it. See, this morning, this whole message, everything I want to talk about is this. I want to talk about the power of God's word. It's absurd. If you really start to look at the life of people that you know that have been transformed by, look at your own life, it's absurd. And I think somewhere along the line over the last century, we kind of started to downplay it. Like, we have seen it start to begin to kind of dilute into, like, a self-help book. Maybe we use it as, like, a supplement to other things to help us live, like, good and happy lives. Or how about this? Um, some use it as just, like, a lifeline whenever something, like, like life hits the fan. Like, that's the time where you get, it gets dusted off the shelf. And you, like, really need the encouragement right here, here and now. And some, unfortunately, have gone as far to chalk it up as a history book or... Even worse, a fairy tale, a myth. But I'm here to tell you it's so much more than that. As a matter of fact, it claims to be so much more than that as well. Let's. I have three passages, three quick scriptures I want to run us through real fast just to show you how God's word describes itself. Check this out. Hebrews 4.12. Maybe some of you know it. For the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, find me a sword that can do that. And whoo, of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I, I love how this verse describes how God's word, it can, it can slice through the physical and the spiritual. Nothing else. You won't find anything else that can do that. How about this one? Matthew 24, 25, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. God's word is eternal. Nations, churches, people, places, things, rise, fall, change, but God's word is eternal. It's not going anywhere. If you track throughout history, every major power that's ever risen up has tried to suppress God's word in some way, shape, or form. Look at Rome like we're gonna see now. Think of Nazi Germany. Think of our world today. Every single one of them has tried to downplay, stifle out God's word. And you can't do it because it's eternal. It's not going anywhere. How about this one? This is one of my favorite verses, verses of the entire Bible. Jeremiah 23:29. Is not my word like a fire, declares the Lord. Or like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. It doesn't get stronger than that. It describes. Itself like a sledgehammer that can shatter even the hardest stones, and a fire that consumes everything. Have you ever seen a video of a wildfire, or a, a video of, of like a super unfortunate, like, like a building or a house starts with something small, a quick spark, and all of a sudden it's like no stopping it. It's consuming. Let me ask you: Do those verses sound uh, make the Bible sound like another you know, chicken soup for the soul? No. It's not. God's word is not a weak, self-help book. It is the living, active, powerful, moving, and involved word of God. Yes, it's encouraging. Yes, it is helpful. Yes, I hope it brings you joy to read it. But it's also a sword. It's also a fire. And it's also a hammer that can shatter the hardest of hearts. There's an immense amount of power in God's word. It's alive, it's active, it's moving, it's working, it's not some dormant, outdated piece of literature. God's word causes a holy ruckus in our hearts because it challenges our sin sin head on. God's word takes an offensive stance against the wickedness of man. It brings conviction. Sometimes it takes us to the mat and it TKOs us real quick. Did anybody watch the fight last night? Ryan Garcia? Out in the eighth round, he's never lost before. Took a rib shot, took him eight rounds to get there. It was one of those like, didn't really see it. And all of a sudden he takes a knee and the place exploded. God's word doesn't take eight rounds. Doesn't even need to take eight seconds. Can do whatever it wants, whenever it wants. Man, in today's text, I, I want to draw out just, just three ways that the power of God manifests itself. Three ways that we see it. And I want to send you out this morning with the confidence of that immense power. I want you to see that the word of God is truly powerful enough to change you, to change your siblings, your friends, your coworker, your spouse. It's powerful enough to change the world. The book we open every week, the one that you read maybe in the morning or at night before you go to bed is not just another thing. It's the all-powerful word of God. And I want to see that. I want to show you that in Acts chapter 17 this morning. You ready? That's a pretty heavy way to start an intro. Usually you get like music. I tried the sports thing. It didn't work. So we just jumped straight into it. You ready? You with me? we got to shake that off. Woo! Here we go. Open up your Bibles. Acts chapter 17. See, this morning we're going to continue in our series in Acts. And we're going to learn uh, what went down in Paul's first trip to Thessalonica. And if you remember from last week, Paul and his buddy Silas, they've left Philippi. And that trip was really fruitful, really exciting. There was a bunch of different kind of mini stories all inside of that little journey. <clears throat> uh, but it was also super painful. Probably didn't end the way that they were hoping. Uh, they got beaten up. They got thrown in jail for preaching Christ. And now they're out of that city and they're making a hundred mile trek kind of southwest to a city called Thessalonica. You ever read the book First or Second Thessalonians? Those are letters that Paul wrote to this church that he's about to establish here. So Thessalonica, a little bit about it. It's important. It's a thriving, wealthy, it's a transient city. Uh, It's anywhere between 100,000 and 200,000 people living in this city. Uh, It was the capital of Macedonia. It sits along the Via Ignatia. Everyone say Via Ignatia you don't know what that means, that's just a, it's a Roman road. It's a, it's a big, long highway. If you heard the phrase, all roads lead to Rome, well, if you're living in that, these days, in that area, that was fact. It was actually true. Rome was notorious for having a really good road system that connected Rome with the rest of it, right? Uh, it was a harbor city, so it sat on the Aegean and I tell you all that to, to help us understand that this stop that Paul and Silas make, uh, it's really strategic, It is, this was a planned thing. It wasn't just like, where should we go now? How about here? No, you see Thessalonica, um, because the fact that it was right on this very major Roman road, because it was uh, wealthy and there was a lot of importing and exporting coming out of it, because it was a harbor town, it would have people coming in and out all the time. So if you're thinking back then, they didn't have Twitter or Instagram or, or Bible apps. No, the way that God's word was spread was word of mouth. So Paul and Silas saying, hey, we're going to stay here for a while. We're going to set up a church here. They knew that if they were successful in this, then they would have hundreds and thousands of people coming in and out of this city, constantly hearing the word of God, giving their lives to Jesus, and God's kingdom would be built. God's word would be spread because people were always coming in and out. You with me? So that's where we're picking up. Acts 17 Start in verse 1. It says this. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis in Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. That's important. We're going to talk about it in a second. Verse 2. And Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So you've been tracking with us through our series in Acts. Coming to the church for like the last two years, you've been tracking with us. You probably won't be surprised of what we just read here. Right? Paul goes into a new city, he finds a synagogue, he starts preaching. That's kind of his normal gig, it's what he did. But that's important. I don't want to gloss over that detail, and, and here's why. It says, the text says, he went in, he went to the synagogue, he preached as was his custom. See, what I want us to understand about this is that Paul had a strategy. Luke wrote this book and Luke had seen enough, heard enough to understand that there was a pattern to what Paul would do to reach others for Christ. Paul's whole bit was go into a city, usually with like some bumps and bruises and lashes and probably in some pain, take the 100 mile trek like he did here, go find a synagogue and preach from it. See what we're seeing, it's it's a small look into a strategy that Paul uses over and over again throughout his missionary journeys. I, I think sometimes... Myself included, I'll be the first one to say I'm, I'm, I'm with you here. You know, we, we get into this mindset, into this habit that the only time we can share Christ, the only time that we can evangelize or make an impact is when there is like an unexpected moment. I think unexpected, we talk about divine appointments a lot here at church. I think those are amazing. I talked to a friend today that told me that he had one this morning. Praise God for that. That's awesome. I want more of that. But I think sometimes we can slip into a habit of thinking that's the only time that we can do it. That's the only appropriate time when it's okay to share Christ with somebody else. But what we're seeing right here, that that's not true. Paul had a plan. Paul had a strategy. Do you have one? Do you have one? It doesn't have to be written down. It doesn't have to be a five-point message, but do you have just, even in the back of your head of a plan. When you walk into a place, when you are in your communities, in your homes, are you intentional with it, or are you just just waiting for the divine appointment? I'll tell you, you guys know I play this music thing, but there's a new coffee shop that it opened up in Cannonsburg called Fresh Start, and I love it um, because it's cheaper than the one down the street, and um, it just opened and it's really cool. It's like a nonprofit type type deal, like kind of. They're like they'll acknowledge the they'll acknowledge Christ, but they're not all in with Jesus Christ. But it's really cool because it's a it's a nonprofit. The majority of people that are there are are volunteers. It's like a volunteer led coffee shop, and, and it's and it's new. So I'm like, you know what? This is gonna be my spot. It's going to be my spot. And I've gone there a handful of times. And man, I met Sonia. She's the manager. She's wonderful. She was very close with my neighbors who passed away. Small world. Um, I met Johnny. Johnny uh, created the original Johnny Waffle. He's the owner of the place. Uh, Him and I talked for a while. He's a musician. I'm a musician. So we chatted about that. Um, I met a guy named Sav this past week. Saviel. And he was really cool. He asked me, he saw I had my Bible open. He asked me what I was teaching on. Turns out he's a guy in ministry, out of ministry now, trying to figure out what he's doing. I just got to sit with him and encourage him. And I met a guy named Stephen. I ran into Stephen the other day. Lauren, maybe I told you this, Laura. Um, Stephen sold us our house two years ago. And he's sitting there talking to Johnny and Sav and all these guys. And man, my like one ounce of intentionality of, of I'm going to go here. I'm going to look for opportunities here. I'm going to make opportunities here. Guess what? They're all sitting at a table. They start talking. Stephen starts talking about, oh yeah, I sold the house a couple years ago to a, some guy that works, works for a church. And I walked over there. I said, hey, that's me. <laughs> I did, that's what I did. And they're like. <laughs> <laughs> and guess what I got to do? I got to share all about what God is doing here in our church. I told them about the journey that I've been on the past, well, I guess over a year at this point, how God led me here, all the things that the Lord is doing. And it was amazing. Guys were like, Whoa. Open the door to talk about Christ. Just a tiny little piece of intentionality, keeping my ears open, saying, hey, I'm going to make it a point to frequent this place. I'm going to look for opportunities. I'm going to make opportunities to share Christ with others. Paul had a strategy. His was go into a city, find the synagogue, preach truth. I wouldn't suggest going up to this church next week up the street and just deciding that you're going to be the preacher that day, but I guess Paul could do it. So why, why was this so important to Paul? Well, There's a few reasons. First is this. Is this is where the most influential religious people would be. The Jewish leaders of the day, they were kind of like top dogs. They had a lot of pool. And Paul was trying to change the world for Jesus, so he found the people with a lot of influence. The second one is this. Synagogues would be where he found a concentration of Jews. See, Thessalonica, it was a free city, under the umbrella of the Roman Empire, so they had their own kind of government body. They could kind of call their own shots, like big boy, big brother Rome wasn't exactly like super in the weeds with what was going on there. Um, It was free under the Roman Empire, but while Paul did have a goal to reach both Jew and Gentile, we see in Romans 1.16, he talks in Romans, in that verse, about how there is a priority placed on the Jewish people. Romans 1.16, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He went after Jewish people first. And if you're like, Ben, why? Why is that such a thing? I'm not Jewish. Why am I second string? You're not. I'm not going to go through all the reasons why, but there's a really good article. It's, uh, John Piper has this ministry called Desiring God. And if you just throw into Google, Desiring God, Romans 1.16, First to the Jew. He has way more than you're going to want to read on it, and it's great. And while it is long, it is very succinct in in, in his his reasoning for it. It's all straight out of God's Word. I would encourage you to go back and go read that. Do some homework this week. Um, It's really, really interesting. And this was the last one. It was common to find God-fearing Gentiles in the synagogues. These were people that were not of Jewish descent, but they were Um, They were considered God-fears. They were interested in it. They were open to hearing and learning about God. So Paul saw the synagogue as the place where he could get really the most bang for his buck. And it says that he spent three days in the synagogue reasoning with them from the scriptures. Three days. Three Sabbath days. Let's unpack that. It's important. First, we don't know if it was like three consecutive Sabbath days. If Paul was here for a long time and spent, you know went in here for one week and did it, and then another few weeks went by. It doesn't really matter. The point is is that he spent a good amount of time reasoning, not just preaching, reasoning with them from the scriptures. So let me ask you, why would Paul, a very busy man, have to take three days to reason with the Jews and the Greeks in the synagogue, on their home field? Why three days? How about this? Paul came in. He preached the truth of God's word. He preached the gospel. And he had to spend three days answering their questions and reasoning with them because it struck a chord. Whatever he was talking about got someone right here. Somewhere deep down, it pierced their hearts. It probably made them a little uncomfortable. God's word describes itself like a sword. I don't know if you've been stabbed before. It doesn't feel good. They had questions. See, I want you to understand that God's word, the gospel of Jesus Christ has an incredibly unique ability to meet people no matter where they are and pierce them to the core. When God starts knocking on the door of your heart, when the truth of his word starts to pierce you, it's really, really, really hard to ignore it. As a matter of fact, I'd go as far as to say you have to take a very active stance, an offensive stance to say, "Uh uh-uh, not looking at this one. Think about it. You can share God's word with a group of people and it can strike chords that challenge their beliefs, their emotions, their traditions, their way of life in totally different ways for each person. It's a power unlike anything else in the world. I can't tell you how many times I've, I've preached a message and, um, God has used his word through me. And then I have people come up and say, man, they tell me their life story. They're telling me about the situation that they're going through. And they say that, man, what what God's word had this morning spoke. It was like you're speaking right at me. It's like this text was written right for me. And they're in totally different boats, different places in life. Different areas in their walk with Christ, different belief systems, but the same message, the same word of God hit every single one of those people in a totally unique way. You don't find that anywhere else. It's the power of the word. It's piercing. If you're a note taker, write that one down. God's word is piercing. Let me ask you ever talk to someone about Jesus and they just like, conversation shifts. Walls go up, they get angry. Things went immediately into defense mode. The whole demeanor changed. Why is that? Because the power of the gospel is piercing them in a way that challenges them. I said it earlier, it takes an offensive stance against sin. It is there to go after the lost. It's living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. God's word, the gospel of Jesus Christ, has a way of going after the very foundation of who they think they are and nothing else in the world can do that. The gospel goes after you. It calls for repentance. It puts Jesus on the throne where you want to sit. It's going after you to pull you out of death and into life. And our sin nature wants to resist that. That's what's happening here. Paul preaches the gospel, he makes a claim that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, and that challenges the entire belief system of Jewish society. And it starts a three-session debate. He spends three days using the Old Testament, the scriptures that they would have been very, very familiar with, to prove that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that he had to come, live a sinless life, sacrifice himself, die, and resurrect to truly be the guy that they were looking for. I'm not going to go into a deep dive of Old Testament prophecy right now. But what I want us to see is that the gospel has that unique ability to pierce right where you are. The gospel's never changed. The message of Jesus Christ coming to earth, living a sinless life, being crucified, dead and buried and resurrected to save us from sin is what Paul is preaching. And it's the same thing that we preach today, but the way that that hits people, the way that it resonates with you, it's an incredibly individual level that's nothing short of mind-blowing. And the reason for that is because it's a God, it's God's word, and God cares about every single person. He cares about you. He does. He wants you to know him. He wants your heart and his word is powerful unlike anything else to meet you exactly where you are at. So what do we do with that? That's cool stuff. What do we do with that? How should that change the way that we think, the way that we believe, the way that we live? Church, I, I want us to understand that the reality that God's word is living, active, sharper than to any edge sword. I want that to increase your confidence to wield it. All of us that are in Christ today have been changed by the truth of God's word. My life looks way different now than it did before I knew Christ. And when we share that with others, the same power that changed us can meet them in the way that only it can. We don't produce power. We don't change hearts. God does. And his gospel is more than sufficient in and of itself to meet somewhere or to meet someone where they're at and pierce them to their core. My prayer for anyone in this room that doesn't know Christ yet is that his word would pierce your heart. That it would be so uncomfortable that you can't ignore it. That your only response would be, God, okay, I get it. I surrender. There's my white flag. And we'll all sing that Hillsong song together from 2012. It's back to the text, verse four says, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men, uh, men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out. Three days. Paul reasons with these guys for three days. And not only were some of the Jews converted, but also a bunch of the Greeks and they made a point to say a lot of the prominent women in the city gave their lives to Christ too, and praise God. That is evidence right there that God's word is exactly what it says it is. God's word met people through the power of the Holy Spirit, where they were at, God's kingdom grew and people went from death to life. But we've seen this enough. We've seen this enough in Acts. I preached a whole message on it a few months ago. When ministry happens, when God's word goes out, what can we guarantee without a shadow of a doubt that's headed our way? Yup. When God's word goes out, you better believe that opposition is on its way. And that's what we see here, right? It happens right here in verse five. It says, but the Jews were jealous. See, the reaction, the, the, the religious officials, the authority, right? Had to see and give, people give their life to Jesus. Their reaction was jealousy. See, what was going on was this. So there's the synagogue. Judaism was very popular. That was kind of the, the religion, right? And you have these leaders of the synagogue, the, the Jewish leaders, right? They viewed the Greeks in that time as people that could be converted, people that can join Judaism. But here's the hangup. In order to do that, the Gentile men... To be fully ingrained into Judaism and to be part of that family, circumcision. Turns out that wasn't super high on the list for adult men to go through. So what you would find is a bunch of Greeks, these Gentiles, they would come to the synagogue, they would listen, but they would be considered God-fearers. They were people that were, I'm listening, I'm tracking with you, but I'm not really ready to make that full deep dive over here. Can't blame them. They kind of watch. They consider themselves God-fears. So when Paul and Silas roll into town and all of a sudden the Greek Gentiles start giving their lives to Jesus and they become Christ followers, right? Christians. The Jews, they start to lose their minds. They're upset. They're jealous. Trust me, I know how this feels. The give and take to see someone go somewhere else. I help lead a church. It's hard. So what do they do? Says they were jealous and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob. They set the city in uproar. They attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out. Man, before I move forward, I have to I have to stop. And I was, I'm actually past it in my notes, but the Spirit is telling me that no, don't take the time do this whole bit. So I'm just gonna scroll back up. I gotta ask you guys before we move on: Are you a God fearer? are you a God follower? They're very different. A God-fearer is someone who has maybe been in church for a while. They know about God. They maybe would even acknowledge, yeah, Jesus, good guy. You've come, you've consumed, you've sat. You might even play the game, right? You could, you could play the church game. Absolutely can. But at the end of the day, you have not gone all in. At the end of the day, you're still someone that sits here every single week or once a month or every once in a while when a family member asks you to come or a friend or or, or whatever. And you hear and you consume and you say, man, that was, I feel good. I'm glad I went to church today. I'm glad I'm in my V group. But you've never actually been captivated and transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. See, a God follower has said, no, I acknowledge the fact I have believed in my heart and confessed with my mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. I am all in. And a good way to be public about that that we do in the church is through baptism. I'm not saying if you haven't been baptized, you're not all in. Baptism is not a prerequisite for salvation. But I want you to do it. God wants you to do it, is what I should say. We can talk about that later. Do you know who God is or do you know God? If you're like, I don't know, let me ask you. Has your life been transformed by Jesus Christ? Does your life look different now than it did a year ago, a month ago, a week ago? Can you point back to a season, a day, a moment in your life that said, this is when it happened Pastor once told me, it doesn't matter if you know the time and day. The only thing that matters is, is that you know that you did it. That you've given your life to Jesus. That you've gone all in with Jesus Christ. And if you have not done that today, please, before you leave, come find me. I'm in like a camel brown jacket. My head is bald. It shines off the lights. You can't miss me. Come talk to me. Let's figure it out. Let's do it. Today. Don't miss it. Don't be like a Greek that sits in the synagogue and listens and says, mm, No, not. That's good. One's lunch? Ooh, there's my challenge for the day. Back to the text. Where were we? Oh, uh, yeah, the mob. There we go. So they form a mob. They set the city in an uproar. They attacked the house of Jason. Jason was their host in Thessalonica. We believe he's a, he was a believer who housed Paul and Silas. It was like their Airbnb host, but I doubt they had to pay and seeking them out to bring the crowd. So these people, they, they get jealous. They find what the Bible describes as wicked men. If you translate that back to from the Greek, it means bad, good for nothing. These were some scummy dudes. Remember SpongeBob? Remember that like cowboy bar in SpongeBob where all the mean guys were? What was that place called? Salt, I love Then not just one person, multiple people in one accord. The Salty Spittoon. These were these dudes, bad dudes. Everyone say bad dudes. So what do they do? What any logical person would do when they're jealous. Let's go break into the house, attack the guys, drag them out, and try to get them killed. Rational. They can't find Paul and Silas, so they grab the next best thing. Jason, other believers, they drag them in front of the city authorities. It's blind violence. Jason and these other believers didn't do anything. But, church, you need to understand that God's word is so powerful that people have to go to extremes to reject it. It's an extreme response, it's evil, it's sinful, it's violent, and it's ironic. So we see it all throughout history. We see even now the lengths that sinful humanity will go to reject God's word. They try to deny its power and they take extremes just to, to point to, they take extremes rather, and those extremes just point to the fact that God's word truly is what it says it is. If it wasn't powerful, if God wasn't who he says he was, if Jesus wasn't the savior of the world, there wouldn't be a constant attack to try to stifle it. It wouldn't. And if their reaction wasn't enough testament to its power, look what they say. Verse 6, it's not true. It's all false. Blasphemy. That's the Ben version. Verse 6 says this, and when they couldn't find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city in authority, shouting. Not rational, shouting. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. If anyone could ever describe me as a person who has turned anything upside down, I will, I'll quit. I'm done. That's the peak. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Do you know how a tent maker and a guy who just a couple months ago, weeks ago, year ago, was a leader of a totally other religion, do you know how they turned the world upside down? Not with their skill, not with their incredible knowledge, no. Only through the power of the message that they preach. That's it. The disciples were a bunch of fishermen, teenagers. These apostles were just dudes. They turned the world upside down through the power of God's word. If you're a note taker, write this down God's word is revolutionary, it's revolutionary. Word means involving or causing a complete or dramatic change. God's word brings radical change. A few no-name guys flipped the entire world on its head because the preaching, the living and active word of God. It drove everything they did and it changed the world. Man, if you read the news for a few minutes, seconds, you'll hear more and more about how the religion needs to stay out of our schools. Should stay out of politics, out of any major cultural conversation. And when they say religion, they, they mean Christianity. They do. The Bible needs to stay away, let it be two separate things. And I'll be the first one to tell you this probably not a popular opinion. I think that's a terrible idea. God knows how to do all of those things best. He does. He does. He gave us his word so, he can, so we can know how he wants us to live. So let me ask, what kind of hubris do we have to have to think that when it comes to our world, we just leave them out of the conversation? Here's the box where I put Jesus in. Here's the box where everything else goes. No, it's ridiculous. Listen, here's some hard truth. There's two powers at work in this world. There's the power of God and there's the power of Satan. That's it, just two. Look at all the other stuff, no, two. Power of God, power of Satan. And I will be the first one to tell you that Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion looking to devour. The spaces that we choose to leave God out of our world, out of our lives, out of our families, whatever spaces we leave God to the side, Satan's gonna come in and he's gonna try to fill it. If you don't believe me, just, just open your eyes. I'm sorry if that sounds harsh, but that's what's happening. T.R. Glover He's an author. He's dead now. The best authors are the dead authors because they can't change their minds later. He said this, when Christianity really goes into action, it inevitably causes a revolution both in the life of the individual and in the life of society. It's true. Look at any successful major nation that has lasted, you'll point back to their greatest times is when God's word was held as the authority. We're going to talk about that in a minute. So where do we start? If we want God's word to revolutionize our world, if we want to see our world flipped upside down because the gospel of Jesus, where do we start? And hit this list really fast. I'm going too long. <laughs> Par for the course. How about this? It starts in ourselves. You can't lead others where you've led yourself, where you haven't led yourself, rather. You need to consume God's word so it consumes you let it transform this you won't be able to see it transform anything else until it transforms here god has given us the privilege to be his tools to build his kingdom and it starts in the individual and once out of our individual it's out of the individual our next priority our next level of responsibility is our homes dads dads I'm talking to you you need to lead your homes towards godliness you need to hold this book in the highest place of reverence, the highest place of authority. Lead your kids, moms. Lead them towards godliness. Discipleship starts in the home. I will never be able to build a good enough program over in v Kids to disciple better than you have the opportunity to do in your home. I could put the greatest thing together. That's what I'm praying for. But it will not be the intentional moments where the dad and mom get together with their kids. Your kids need to know the word of God. Your families need to know the word of God or the world's going to eat them alive. It's happening younger and younger and younger every single day. We want to see a revolution. It starts in our hearts and it starts in our homes and then it pours over into our communities. You remember a few weeks ago when we talked about V groups that The church got together in homes, right? Synagogue or in the temple courts and in homes. And because when they were in their homes doing the things of God, living the way Christians are called to live, it started to get super leaky. And it said they found favor with everybody around them. That's what happens when God's people get together, when God's people choose to live according to God's word. You can't deny it. It's different. It's revolutionary. And when we start to do that in each and every one of our communities, that's when we see our world start to change. God's word is revolutionary because there's power in it. No other book in history has done what the Bible has been able to do because there's no other book that has power like it. It's the living, active word of God. And it starts in us. And then it goes into our homes. And when we do that, watch how everything around you starts to change. Last one. Band asked for a very specific cue when to come back up. This is it. Yes, you start making your way up. Last one. God's word is authority. It's authority. Verse seven, and Jason received them, and they're all acting against the decree of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. When the people in the city and the authorities were disturbed and they heard these things, or when they heard these things rather, verse nine, when they had taken money and security from Jason and the rest, they let him go. So mob takes Jason and the other believers accusing them of turning the world upside down as if that's a bad thing. And they accuse them of treason. Extreme. Says they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there's no or there's another king. Jesus. This is a big deal. This is a bold statement. Back in those days Caesar was God. He put himself elevated himself as the highest deity level of authority there could have been. So these Jason and friends it's kind of like Phoebe and the band remember when we said that when they claimed that Jesus was king that there was an authority higher than Caesar it was treason but did you notice Jason and his buddy's response there wasn't one why didn't they rebuttal because the mob was right (laughs) they were right Jesus is king Jesus Christ is the word of God incarnate. Their silence was a line in the sand. It was a cards on the table move. Said this is where my allegiance stands. and It disturbed the city authorities. It was disturbing. It was a big, bold claim, but they just kind of made them, pay them off essentially is what happened to get out. It's their kind of get out of jail free card. But it was disturbing because that's not a reaction they would typically see. They, hey, they make Jason, they pay a fine for causing a ruckus, even though the mob was the one who caused the ruckus. They banned Paul and Silas from coming back to Thessalonica. and That's why you see Paul later in the New Testament write letters saying that he wishes he could go visit them. He couldn't because he wasn't allowed back in. And that's where our text ends this morning. But I want to just, one more thing. Jason, the believers, Paul and Silas, they acknowledged and lived according to the truth that Jesus Christ is king. He is Jesus Christ isn't king if you let him be. He's king. You can choose to bow the knee now, you can choose to bow it when it's too late. You only got two options. Jesus Christ is king. He's the incarnate word of God, and therefore God's word holds ultimate authority. Maybe you read that point, and you're like, God's word is authority. Why wouldn't you say authoritative? Because I didn't want anyone to think leaving here that like God's word is kind of on the same level as, Constitution, something. No, it is authority. There isn't an authority higher than this. Our world right now is pushing a false narrative that the truth can be whatever you want it to be. It's created this chaotic mixture of my emotions, how I feel, my, my upbringing, what everyone else is thinking, my own flawed logic, and whatever CNN, Fox News, Joe Rogan podcast, whatever progressive Instagram account you you follow creates this mixture that's my truth and it's hot garbage sorry i love you enough to tell you that there's only one authority and it's christ and he's given us his word to tell us exactly what he's all about god does it best he knows best because he created all of this and I want our church, the believers, the, the family that is vintage church to be the example of people that say, yes, God's word is powerful. It can pierce. It can split you in half in a good way. That it's revolutionary. That we truly believe and live like God's word changes things. That when we choose to be Upfront, vocal, unashamed of the yeah, we live according to God's word that we're gonna start to see the change in our homes and our lives and our friends and our families and our schools in the White House, whatever you're looking for. And of course it's authority. When my feelings don't match up with what God's word says, I'm gonna choose to follow God's word. Why? Because it's God's word and he knows better than I do. When God says don't, what he actually means is don't hurt yourself. It's not a bunch of rules and stuff for you to follow blindly. No, God has created you. He knows, he's created life itself. And in our sinfulness, we like to think that we know better, but when we do things according to God's word, I'm not gonna promise it's gonna be easy, but I promise it's gonna be the very best you can see on this side of eternity. Whew. That was a lot. we got a lot to talk about in V group this week. God's already up, Monday night crew love you guys. That's what happens when you give me a week off. I think too much. I'm gonna pray. We're gonna worship. And I'm going to get lunch with my boy, Timmy. And Josiah, but most of Tim. Love you. Father God, uh, God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for giving us the guide to life the guide to holiness. And God, thank you for not making it like like an Ikea instruction manual where the words are there, but the parts don't line up. God, thank you for letting your word be clear about the way that you want us to live. And when we live according to your word, it might not be easy, but it is best because it honors you. And at the end of the day, that's what we're going after. God, thank you for giving us a word that tells us not, this is how to be happy and wealthy and and, and healthy, but no, but God, thank you for giving us a word that, that says this is how you become more like my son, Jesus. God, we hold it in the highest level of esteem, the highest level of reverence. God, not as an idol, but as truth. We love you. God, with these last words that we sing together be an act of worship to you. We pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.